Hi everyone, welcome to Such a Good Feeling. My guest today is one of the true pioneers of electronic music, both as a founding member of the Human League, Heaven 17, and the British Electric Foundation. He's also a highly respected producer with credits including Tina Turner, Terence Trent Darby and Erasure, and most recently a revered podcaster with his brilliant Electronically Yours series. So it's my great honour to welcome the exceptionally talented Martin Ware. Hi, Martin. You know, I'm not, not paying you for this build-up. Listen. People are just going to be so disappointed now. Not at all. You get, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be on your podcast and you gave me a nice build-up, so it was the least yeah. I could do. Thank you. It, it, I I mean, let's just quickly just start there. I mean, I absolutely, as with so many other people, adore your podcast. I think it's uh, it's almost like you're creating a new um, encyclopedia of music, like an audio encyclopedia with the interviews you've you've put together and still keep putting together. Um, how did it even come about? What was the catalyst for the podcast? Um, it was an idea I had during lockdown because I was writing my autobiography, which is also called Electronically Yours, Volume 1. And I thought... I'd been listening to a lot of autobiographies and podcasts myself, and it was keeping me sane during the lockdown, like a lot of other people, while I was doing my five miles a day walking. And I thought I could do that because I know so many people in the music industry and I get on with most of them, you know, um, and I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> and, um, and I just thought, the thing that tipped it over the edge was the idea that we could do it as a, uh, a, a kind of trailer for the autobiography. So when I first started it, I thought, well, I'll try it out, see, see if people like it, number one, see if people are willing to listen to it. I didn't want to monetize it or anything. I just wanted to, um, you know, do it for kind of, legacy re reasons as much as anything else. I just thought it was a nice document of um, that scene. Uh, but I, right from the outset, I decided I, it wasn't just going to be electronic music because I thought that's quite a narrow thing. And soon, it'll soon run out of petrol, that particular engine. So I broadened it to anybody who wanted, really, uh, but largely in the creative field. It's, um, it, I mean, it is very eclectic. I think it's, it's, there's a learning teachable moment in every single one. There's, I mean, you must have learned so much by doing it. Well, it's interesting because, um, as I said, I nearly gave up, uh, at one point when it's kind of a hundred episodes, I thought that seems like a nice round number. Let's just, you know, knock mm. it in the head. And then I thought, well. Do a few more, and I've got a few in the can, and now we're up to nearly 200. And I occasionally go, you know, am I just squeezing blood out of this particular stone, you know, or, or, but every time I kind of implies that it might be coming, coming to an end, people are, you know, kind of come out of the woodwork and start, start saying, oh, please don't, because it's like, we all need things that provide structure to our lives in some small way, don't we? It could be yes. football. It could be, you know, going to the theatre or the cinema every week or 
you know, going to a re, you know, book reading club or you know, it could be anything. And I think I'm not so pretentious as to think it's um, terribly important. It's just uh, a kind of temporary relief from the existential terror that we all feel at the moment. That and a lot of nerding over synths. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's why, you know, I do those, um, what are, are on the surface silly questions at the end. Oh, yeah. Of every episode, but actually they're quite revealing. They are. And, uh, uh, and uh, also it kind of helps people to go down their own kind of research rabbit holes, which I think is something that's just part of everyday life now. Mm. I mean, you, you come across something that's kind of interests you, and then, and then before you know it, you're like an hour into research on the internet about it. And I think that's a really good thing. And I want to encourage people to do that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, I often say to people, it's got a life of its own now. I can't stop it. It's like that Hitchcock film with the roundabout that goes mm. out of control. That's what it's like now. I might want to get off, but I probably cause myself damage doing it now. <laughs> well, and I guess you've, you know, when you get up to 200, you probably think I've exhausted all the guests, but someone will pop in or someone will, will suggest a guest to you and then off you go again. There are lots of very talented people who don't want the limelight, but actually people want to know about them. Yeah. You know, they want to know why, why the hell is this guy? Why have I never heard of him before? You know, there are quite a few people on the podcast who are under the radar mm. in terms of, you know, we live in a world of, uh, of, uh, 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 of kind of social media and, you know, the temptation is to think that everything's hyper exposed and, um, and, um, that everybody that everybody to be successful has to be in the public eye all the time or at least highly active on social media it's just not true you know there's some exceptionally successful people including yourself who are uh who, who are relatively anonymous and i think that that's part of what i've learned from doing the podcast is that uh, it's good to bring these people to public public attention because they start to understand how the whole mechanism works. The world works, you know, I mean, I've interviewed people who are, you know, kind of live engineers, uh, for instance, and stuff like that, or, you know, I've not gone as far as lighting engineers yet or, or, but I'm fascinated with the creative process and more to the point, the, the various cogs that are in this giant machine that make the entertainers, I think is a really lovely thing to bring to the public's attention because it's never publicized. It's all about that, you know, you know the, the, the top 5% of the iceberg, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. But, and, and, you know, you've absolutely done that and there's been names that have been on your podcast that I had never heard of before. And all of a sudden I'm just putting all the pieces together. So, um, may it continue. Sorry, Martin, you're stuck with it. You've got to carry on doing it. Nah, God, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Everybody's encouraging me to carry on. And uh, yes, you must not stop. But the good news is the good news is that, um, I'm creating, uh, there, it will have a legacy, not just because the, 
the episodes will be online forever, but um, I'm going to be doing a an, an exhibition. Oh, amazing. Next year, and the first iteration of it is going to be at World Trade Center 3 in New York. Wow. Uh, yeah, at the Oculus, and uh, with some friends of mine called Culture Club NYC. They do like kind of pop-up outsider art events. Uh, and it's unbelievable that these people contacted me and said, well, we've got this amazing place in the new World Trade Center 3 building. Um, might be interesting. I thought, oh, amazing. I love New York anyway. And um, so, I, I, you know, uh, we've been developing this idea for about six months now. In, and it's going to be in 3D sound. Brilliant. In ambisonics. And it's going to be a load. Of, they concede there's a load of famous people at a party all invisibly wandering around the room. Oh, I love that. And um, anyway, I thought they're going to let me do it for a week. And I thought, well, I can just about justify that. But they said, no, you can have it for the whole month of May. And I'm going, this is fantastic. So I'm going to have a big launch party, invite all my New York mates over there, my friend Norman Hathaway, who's a fantastic world-famous graphic design artist whose specialist subject is um, psychedelic art from the late 60s and early 70s. So he's going to do me a logo and all the graphics. It's going to be called uh, Adventures in the Electroverse, I cool. think. yeah. That's what I'm calling it at the moment anyway, unless it changes. Um, yeah, so this could be a lot of famous people at the launch, and hopefully it will be a big success. I want to bring it to London. I've got a few ideas you might want to put it on, and Sheffield, and anywhere else that will have us, really. I cannot wait for that. Um, talking of Sheffield, obviously, you know, that's where you're from, that's where you grew up. Um, what's your earliest memories of, of music growing up in Sheffield? When, when did music really start to become a big part of your life? Well, Sheffield was quite interesting when we were growing up because it was kind of right in the middle of Margaret Thatcher destroying the steel, the steel community and mm. losing 70,000 jobs in a town of half a million, you know, mm. in a couple of years. So it was like a lot of empty buildings, a lot of... Um, the general mood was not great, you know, but, you know, out of adversity comes forth opportunity, you know. The places that were uh, suddenly empty were, uh, were being used as uh, very cheap rehearsal studios by bands. So it's very much a, Sheffield is a, a kind of doing city. It's, like, it's, it's not so much a consuming city like London, where you can go out and, see every, anything you want at any time you want, which leads to a certain kind of option paralysis, I, I believe. In uh, Sheffield, really, there were big bands who came to the City Hall and a couple of, and mainly discos, and, and, and a couple of pubs, and that was it. Uh, from, and, and the Sheffield Students' Union. And so there weren't many places to go and consume music, but, but the ones that there were, were fantastic. So I saw the early, I saw, uh, for instance, Roxy Music five times before Eno left, because mm. uh, for some reason Sheffield was um, was a big city for Roxy. Um, so I, you know, I saw Bowie at the City Hall. I saw T Rex 
at, at the city hall. Um, we didn't have any money. We used to break in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and likewise, we, had, we made ourselves fake students' union cards and, and got into the students' union. We had loads of free, free events on there and bands would come along. And um, happy days, really. So there was a lot, there was a lot of uh, people you know, making their own music. And because this, the creative scene in Sheffield is concentrated on, um, there's, there's the university, and then as you walk down towards town from the university, which is about a mile from town, there's a place called West Street, and um, that's where there's a load of pubs and people used to gather there, but there's also... Running parallel to that, going into the city centre, a street called Division Street, where uh, it, it was very close to where our studio was, and there used to be places on there. It was quite hip, you know, for Sheffield. And, um, you know, and just like within 200 yards of that was our big heroes were like Cabaret Voltaire, who became our kind of mentors. Mm. And they had a place called Western Works. So it's all within a kind of square mile, really. Everybody knew each other in that in the, in this kind of scene. And the interesting thing was, um, it was just a diverse of punk, I suppose. Nobody had any real ambition to be a um, to be a big rock star, you know, or or, or even did, could, we couldn't really comprehend that anybody had ever wanted to sign us to a record contract. So, and it's only because punk came along and then there's this do-it-yourself kind of thing about fanzines and finally we realised you could put your own vinyl out, you know. Uh, and there were lots of little independent um, record labels starting up and we didn't even know this was possible, right? So, for instance, our friends uh, Martin Fry and, and Steve Singleton and Mark White, you know, they had they started a fanzine before they started a band called Vice Versa, which then became ABC, you know, uh, and things like this. So, and it wasn't like a kind of, um, it wasn't really terribly competitive at that point, because there was nothing to compete for. You know, there's no reason to compete. Everybody wanted everybody else to do all right. Um, and it's only the people who were in, like, old-style rock bands who started getting resentful of this new kind of swathe of bands who couldn't play their instruments, you know, in their terms. Um, and, you know, uh, watching people like us zoom up in the fast lane and overtaking them didn't go down very well, as you can imagine. Um, and stuff like that. So it's, it's an interesting time. In other words, the resources were there to experiment and find out what you were good at or bad at. Yeah, I get that. I, I think the interesting thing about you as well is that you've spent a life um, in electronic music, but actually second almost equ equivalent to that is you are at heart a bit of a, just a soul boy. Oh, absolutely. Well, my sisters were 10 and 20 years older than me. And they had, uh, we had hardly any books in our house. We had no money, but they, they had plenty of records. 
And so I just, that was, that was my equivalent of what I suppose a PS4 would be now. And I used to just play with, you know, a dance set and stacking up records and listening to music when I was growing up. You know, that was, that was my entertainment. People forget there were only two channels on the telly when I was growing up. You know, and they they didn't start till they didn't start till tea time. Uh, so, you know, it was just part and that and film soundtracks they collected as well. So I grew up with West Side Story and South Pacific and and you know, well, uh, you know, all the sixties, late sixties. Um, pop music. So it's not all soul, but they had a huge collection of Motown records. And then, of course, as soon as I was old enough, uh, I started going to Northern Soul clubs. And they had, uh, I, I never went to the big ones, um, you know, the Twisted Wheel and all that stuff. Um, I was a bit too young. But there were some that we could sneak into in Sheffield at the Queen's Ice Rink. And that really blew my mind. I thought it was fantastic. And um, so I've always loved song music, always, always, always. And that's the real driving force behind both BEF and Hammer 17. Not so much behind the early Human League, uh, but there were certain black elements in that. You know, I mean, when we made Being Boiled, we, we were... Uh, you know, both myself and Phil and, uh, and Ian and, and when Adrian joined, not so much, but uh, we were all obsessed with Parliament Funkadelic, you know. So when we were messing about with the early backing track for being boiled, I just thought, I want to make something that's funky with this electronic stuff. Because I thought, whilst I loved Trans Europe Express and stuff like that, it still felt, um, and, and indeed was, very kind of, it was funky but robotic, and it was a new, it was, it was its own thing, but we wanted to do something that had, I suppose, had more in common with early Detroit and Chicago house, actually, uh, which is more hand-played. It's before MIDI, and um, we didn't, we couldn't afford all these move modular units and outboard sync and, and all that stuff and um so yeah something like being boiled the first version is played by hand we, we've got a hardware sequencer for the rhythm but it's all handmade um but we thought it sounded a bit like parliament funkadelic not not the top line i mean just the backing track i'm talking about and just with two synths right yeah Two cents in a microphone and a tape recorder. That was it. That's all you need. What's your um? What was your introduction into musical instruments in general? You actually being involved in musical instruments. When's your first encounter with a musical instrument? As when you're growing um, up. So I used to go to this youth arts kind of thing in Sheffield, which was a council-run thing called Meat Whistle, which is where I met Glennon and and loads of my friends from that period. Um, who I'm still in contact with, Paul Bauer, Ian Rennington. And ostensibly, it was a drama-based thing, but in fact, it was about all the arts. Mm -hmm. And so we used to pretend, we, we used to have pretend bands. And 
uh, with names like Underpants and Dick Velker and the Astronets and Brilliant. BDK and the Studs. Brilliant. Um, and um, they were all done for our own, for our own, there was about 60 people who went to this youth club thing and we just did it for our own fun. And I thought, at that time, we were big fans of Roxy Music and Bowie and all that stuff. So as soon as I got a wage, which is about 72, 73, I was a training manager at the Corp. And I, for the first time in my life, I had any money at all. Um, and I couldn't believe people would, would give us higher purchase at that age. It just seemed unlikely. But anyway, they did. So. I bought a, a twin stylus stylophone. I think it's the seven. What's it called? A seven fifty or something. And uh, they are legendary instruments now. I mean, they cost a lot of money on the internet. Um, and so we had one of these pretend bands. In fact, it was Underpants, mm -hmm. uh, where I was invited to join some people who could actually play instruments, drums, not very well, but but. Um, guitar, drums, guitar, and Glenn was playing a three-string bass and stuff like that. And I thought I was, I thought I was Eno, you know. I had this uh, two, twin style of stylophone on a church lectern. <laughs> I was playing like, I thought, oh, my God, it was embarrassing. But anyway, so that was my first effort at playing an instrument. Actually, I did before that buy a... Gibson SG copy guitar, but he hurt my finger, so I couldn't be doing with that. Right. That lasted about three weeks, and I sold it to someone else. But obviously that sound, that kind of general electronic sound, I mean, I presume by that point there had been people like Wendy Carlos and various people like that that you'd tuned into a little bit on. Yeah. And so much of it since it's... I don't even know if it's 50-50 performance and 50, like 50% 50 performance, 50% programming. I think it's almost like 90% programming and 10% performance because it's all about the sounds. Just out of necessity, more than anything else. Yeah. Um, I mean, the early Human League gigs, it was all on two-track tape apart from what, what I was playing, what Ian was playing. Yeah. And the vocals, you know. There's no other way we could do it and we couldn't. We didn't know anybody else with any sense about anything else. Mm. And we didn't want to have a big band anyway. It just seemed so... We didn't want to emulate a rock band. You know, it just didn't seem relevant. Uh, we were always more of a kind of studio entity, yeah. really. So our, our um, modus operandi were, were really... About uh, about tape manipulation and recording techniques. Yeah. In much the same way, looking back on it, that really the BBC Radiophonic Workshop was. Yeah. I mean, we would have, listen, if we'd have been rich or had the contacts, we'd have loved to have been like uh, Kraftwerk and have walls of modular synthesizers. And, you know, they were rich dudes. People forget this. You know, I remember going to see Ems Lake and Palmer at the City Hall, and he'd got a giant wall of, I think most of it was for show, to be honest, but a giant wall of pluggable modular synths together with his B3 or whatever, you know, Hammond, 
and stuff like that. And we're going, that dude's smashing up a Hammond B3. He's so rich, you know. And uh, he used to do that. He used to put mm. an axe through it. Mm. God knows how many he got through in a tour. But anyway, and, and you know, so craft work, I think it's important for people to understand. It's not just that they created these beautiful pieces of art, danceable art, but that it seemed completely unattainable to us. And electronic music was always, um, uh, you know, something that really attracted us as the future. You know, I mean, we believed it was going to be the future, and, and it has been, but in a more kind of banal way, really. Mm. I mean, you can't imagine making music without electronic processing now, can you? No. It's impossible. I yeah. mean, well, it's not. It is possible, but it's not done very often. Um, so just about every piece of pop music, 99.9% .9 of pop music, is electronically processed. Yeah. So and there's a, a there's one school of thought that goes, well, everything's electronic music now. Mm -hmm. It's whether the raw material is electronic or not. But we wanted to go, you know, uh, you know, uh, the purest ingredients mm. uh, uh, filtered and created through, you know, the best possible taste and keeping it electronic all the way through the chain except for of course for um for voices and even then you know we were fans of people like annette peacock who experimented with uh treating um treating voices through her op 2600 or vcs3 or whatever it was uh, uh in her early experiments and of course, the whole Wendy Carlos thing with <clears throat> Vakodas, which, by the way, I know everybody's got a Vakoda as part of Logic Pro now and all that. But back in the day, they were very, very expensive pieces of kit. Mm. I mean, even to rent them was expensive. Um, I mean, the the classic. I can't remember. I think it's a Moog Vakoda. You probably know better than me. Um, which got like a, uh, it's a, it's got like a kind of graphic equalizer controls on the front. You can pick the frequencies, all that stuff. That used to, I think, even in those days, used to cost about 10, 10 grand, which is the equivalent of God knows what now. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the idea that it's dead easy to do this vocoder thing, and there was no way we had access to that kind of technology. We could have, we could have put voices through filters and wah-wahs, or even pedals and uh, ring modulators and such stuff, such like. But that kind of indicative thing that, uh, and very attractive thing that Kraftwerk and other practitioners like Tamita and other people were doing was out, out of our range. Yeah, although I think sometimes, I don't know if you agree, but sometimes limitation breeds creativity and maybe if you had have had all that stuff you may not have come up with effectively two of the albums that have have been the blueprint for modern electronic music thank you very kindly but um it's that classic sheffield thing of having a go you know hmm. 
without any kind of self-consciousness. It's like our view was at the time, well, the, look at the elements that were driving it. One was we wanted to sound like nobody else, and that in itself is you know, a very unusual driving force yeah. in today's popular music. Um, but secondly, the other, the other element is that we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And it didn't matter. And in fact, we always had this kind of classic Sheffield bolshiness going, we don't want to learn either. So like the idea of reading manuals was anathema to us. Hmm. It's like, we want to keep. Uh, if you like the purity of the intention from your subconscious direct to the controls, mm. unmediated through through any kind of traditional musical, conventional notational knowledge, mm. apart from obviously having an ear for music, an ear for melody, ear for chord sequences. Ear, ear. That's I know that's not a given. I understand that, but. Um, it had nothing to do with traditional musical training. Yeah. And, uh, and then the third thing is just going, what's the worst that can happen? You know, you do it. Either you don't, you may like it and nobody else likes it. So what? You know, at that point, we weren't looking to get a record deal anyway. So, and we weren't even doing it for our friends. We didn't give a toss. We were doing it because this little, you know, relatively isolated unit of creativity. We were having a ball. You know, we just wanted to create stuff. It's a bit like saying, right, we're gonna we're gonna make our own little art class, and you know, we've got loads of, you know, we can cut up some cardboard to paint on, and we'll. We'll, you know, we'll buy some cheap paint and we'll just make some art. You know, that's, that's really how we viewed it at that point. But I think, um, as you say, it's really important to look at the timeline of this, of the sort of late 70s, where records had sounded, you know, they sounded, every record in the 60s sounded the same, then most records in the 70s sound, sounded the same. Towards the end of the 70s, this is where, you know, when I was lucky enough to be on your podcast, I was recalling a time when I was a kid on a school bus and I heard being born for the first time and my brain just was like i don't i've never heard anything that's ever sounded like this it felt like it came from space and yeah, it still does actually. it still does yeah but then that, that first version particularly yeah yeah absolutely um but that kind of encouraged a lot of people like me to then go and investigate further and and then when you kind of get to something you know i mean even looking to something like the dignity of labor the those three pieces and there's not a sound on there that sounds like anything else it's i mean at the time it would be unrecreatable now possibly you could recreate it but it genuinely there weren't there was nothing preset or to, it was just it was actually art is a really good way of describing it yeah well we were that's what we were aiming at and it sounds kind of pretentious but i i know it wasn't i know it's coming from the right place uh, the other thing that drove, for instance, Dignity of Labour was um, we just got our first bundle of money, uh, which wasn't a huge amount, from Virgin as our advance. Hmm. And we were just so full of joy 
um, that finally we could have, we could have a proper studio. It rented somewhere. It had got a proper. We we bought a secondhand Ampex eight track one one inch um, multi track, which for us we thought that for us that was like uh, we th- it was like doing Sergeant Peppers, you know, for us. Yeah, uh, we suddenly had this flexibility of multi-track recording because before then it had been bouncing from track to track in stereo and adding things in mono. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was we could afford some outboard gear. We could afford an actual desk. And it was not, it was bottom of the range kind of soundcraft desk, but it was all right. You know, yeah. um, and six is 24 into Eight, yeah, and so a bit of outboard gear like um, a H three thousand and uh, and a spring reverb and uh, that was about it. We didn't. I think we had a compressor as well of some description, um, and it, we this was all self taught. And we had a, a friend of ours, a friend of Bob Lass, actually from Fast Records called Tim Pierce, came down and taught us how to use it all. We picked it up pretty quick and aligned the tape machine and all that stuff. So this is like a, the best Christmas present ever. And then the icing on the cake, which became the cake, actually, um, was the release of the Roland Jupiter 4. Mm-hmm. And we had one of the first ones in the country. And... Uh, this device for the first time had automatic arpeggiation um, presets that you could save and we're going I remember the words I said to Bill and Ian at the time I said this is my dream machine there's never going to be a better synthesizer than this and we we'd already got Ian had already got this Roland System One Hundred, but this, but the uh, Jupiter Four, is polyphonic for God's sake. I mean, is we were working monophonic largely, and we used you know oh my God, you can't you, you couldn't you know I had to I had to teach myself to play chords, you know, and. The sense of beauty and liberation of, of, of suddenly this new uh, creative tool. And it's, you know, it still sounds, it's probably, together with the System 100, my f- favorite sounding synth, uh, polyphonic synth. Uh, better than Jupiter 8, better than uh, a- any other uh, Roland uh, polyphonic synth that came afterwards. I, that was the inspiration for the, for Dignity of Labour. You know, it was like, basically, it was like, a, it was almost like doing demo pieces from this new uh, tool that we'd, we'd acquired. But the interesting thing about the Jupiter 4 was, which is ironic, is it's more designed for musicians rather than technicians. So for the first time, you could really use it like a proper musical instrument. Mm-hmm. Whereas 
using the system 100, every single sound had to be created from scratch. Yeah. Every rhythm pattern had to be individually created. You couldn't save anything apart from writing it down. Uh, and suddenly you got this tool could, that could actually be played live, right? I know it sounds ridiculously basic, but to us it was a revelation. And uh, it, that, it would, that led to the blossoming of our, um, of our s more complex songwriting, you know, because all of a sudden you can create, easily create very interesting sounding um, chord sequences. Were you always pretty quick to pick up the tech? As in, were you always, once you started quite at one, when a new something came in, would you be pretty much at one with the synth quite quickly? Um, yeah, relatively speaking, I would say. Because once you've learned the basics, I mean, the, the fantastic thing about the Roland System 100 for those who don't know about it, no. is it's is really like a teaching tool mm -hmm. because it's so elegantly and beautifully organized. There's no kind of, there's no concealing the functionality or, 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 or uh, accreting or, or covering it or obscuring it with, with gobbledygook. It's just very, much designed for the layman, which is me. And it's interesting, recently I just bought the Korg recreation of the ARP 2600. Mm. And one of the reasons why I never really aspired to buying one of, one of those or a VCS3 or a, you know, similar machines back in the days, because they are really, they're like scientific instruments, you know. They don't really appeal to the creative part of my brain as much. They're more like technically maybe more capability, but creatively not as attractive to me. So, yeah, I mean, fundamentally, we had all the songwriting tools that we felt that we needed at that point. Mm. In much the same way as the Beatles must have thought, well, we've got drums, bass, guitar, and maybe a bit later on some keyboards, you know. Uh, we felt that we didn't need anything else because with those instruments, this a really, you know, almost infinite number of sounds you can create. And then the, 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 when you talk about picking up technology, once you've learned those basic building blocks of how electronic sound is, is put together, yeah. that applies to everything. The problem for me came along when it, it, it turned into FM synthesis because then you got back, uh, really, this is all about economics from their end. They can make things cheaper. Uh, programming them was, was not easy. Uh, so people just generally, but they also had a gazillion presets. So people start, started being lazy and just using the presets and modifying them slightly. Yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm pretty much against those kind of multi-layer um, FM synthesis machines where, you know, every button on the front of the machine had a different function, five different functions depending on what key press, you know, all that bollocks. I can't be doing with it. 
So I still um, would rather go back to, if necessary, to re-educate myself. I would go back to scratch and go, right, well, today I'm just going to create some stuff from scratch on the System 100. Yeah. Mm. And it kind of re it regenerates my interest in in molding sounds to my purpose, not not just selecting sounds, which is what happens a lot nowadays. It does, it does. When your version of Human League came to a, a premature end, did you have? Were you did you already have a plan for what album three would have sounded like? Yeah. Um, in fact, we're halfway through writing it, which is why. There are two sides on Sounds and Pavement because uh, the electronic side, which is the B side, the second side, uh, were originally the demo, the electronic demos for the third Human League album. Wow. Okay. Uh, and they were, you know, they were they were pretty much done. It just needed top lines. Um. And then we thought, well, we just don't want to carry on with what the what the Human League uh, are still going to carry on with the same theory, uh, albeit with different personnel. So we thought what we want to do is to create something on the other side of the album that is using a different palette of uh, sounds, which is what the Penthouse side, the first side of the album. Is so we allowed ourselves to use bass guitar, um, Lindrum, uh, uh, real piano uh, combined with electronics. And I've always believed since then that the magic, uh, happens when you combine a lot of different technologies. Now, I mean, I, I regard what we what could be said to be traditional instruments is just. That was new technology anyway, you know, when it came out. So um, uh, I would never, never want to go down the route of making it completely like a traditional rock band. But um, I mean, that's why we did BF at the same time, because it, it was kind of like a, um, a sandbox for experimenting with stuff which wouldn't have been allowed in the original Human League, right? So we've got in orchestras, for instance. And you know Hank Marvin to play guitar, and so I was learning about the the vast world of guitar sounds, for instance, and the world of orchestral um, coloration, and uh, that teaches you uh, by default. It teaches you skills about arrangement and counterpoint and pocketing and everything, really. Mm. Uh, and you don't, it's a bit like stealth learning, you know? Mm. Um, and it was fun, you know, because it was like all of a sudden the, the, the brakes were off, the handbrake was off. We could do anything. I mean, something that really, really has always appealed to me is uh, the combination of electronic analog sense and orchestras and when you can't tell the difference uh, when you can't discern whether it's extraordinary uh, orchestral techniques on strings in particular or, or it's synthesizers you know i i think that there's magic in that 
that term combination. Definitely. When, um, I mean, obviously it was very quick, the turnaround. What was your uh, approach to Glenn Gregory when you first spoke about Heaven 17? I mean, I guess you knew each other anyway. Oh, we've been friends. He was always, Glenn was always the um, the singer in all these kind of daft bands that we had. Mm. Uh, he always had the charisma and he always, you know, he didn't have to volunteer. He was just like one of those things, oh, Glenn's the singer, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he, he was a natural, and in fact, he would have been the original singer of the Humor League. Right. But he just moved down to London to seek his fame and fortune as a photographer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just bad timing. So that's why we were looking for a singer. We didn't want to advertise in the local press or Melody Maker or whatever it was. And I said, well, I've got this mate from school. I don't know if he can sing. I literally never heard him sing, but he's got a great haircut. And uh, that's how Phil got the job once we auditioned him on the top line of being boiled so yeah yeah so with the first heaven 17 recordings the part two of the album that you talk about was it was it trying glenn on the songs that you had originally planned for the second one or did were the first recordings the first part of that album um neither actually the first recording was was um a backing track that we'd done uh, for BES, which to alignment. Because mm. I, 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 he wasn't testing his songwriting skills, obviously, uh, but just wanted to know if he could listen to a tune. I knew he could, but you know, mm. just to try it out. If he, how he would interpret a something that we all loved mm-hmm. on top of on top of a pretty abstract backing track. Yeah, and. Um, and that was great. And then within a week, we'd written Fascist Groove Thing. Yeah. And that was great as well. And we were off. Yeah. And that really does show your love of chic and funkadelic and yeah, all of that. But as you say, with a mixture of electronic and Yeah. Ring. I like... I like that... Um, I just did an interview on a, on the podcast with um, Kevin Armstrong. Mm-hmm. He used to be in Tim Machine, worked yeah, with yeah. Bowie, Iggy Pop, loads of people. And I was talking to him about Blah Blah Blah, uh, the Iggy Pop album. And one of my favourite Iggy songs is on the album, Shades. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful, that song. It's one of my favourite love songs. And I was listening to it as part of the research. And uh, it was just made at the time where Bowie, Bowie kind of co-produced the album. So it was when they were experimenting with various uh, sampling techniques. So at the end of that track, if you listen to it again, there's a he was Kevin was telling me about this thing where they sampled loads of kind of pick guitar and different articulations and put the different articulations onto a mapped it onto a keyboard and then um and then programmed it into a pattern so instead of a rhythm guitar like you would have with chic mm-hmm. it sounded mechanical and and that that's that kind of that kind of that's the kind of creative magic which 
emerges when you've got people who are, who are curious about maybe misusing new technology, right, mm. and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, I, that's, that's a kind of in, in, indicative kind of process that kind of sums up neatly the kind of ideas that we have. We're always trying to find new ways of approaching uh, songwriting or compositions. You know, the, because we believe that the different, um, the different um, methods that you use will generate different outcomes yeah. without knowing what the outcome is going to be. That's the exciting thing. Yeah. So it's, it's having faith from the outset that what you're doing is going to create something that you don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be potentially different to anything else. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what drives everything and and uh, has always driven everything in every band that I've ever been in. Yeah. And when you get to the second album, is there a is there a feeling there needs to be more commerciality or is it just so oh, yeah. happens I mean you did that on purpose. Absolutely. Well, let's put it this way, we just put out you're talking about the second 1070 yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, luxury gap. Yeah. Luxury gap. So when we were when we put two albums out, the first two Human League albums, one of the reasons the band split is because of the commercial pressure that was going on behind the scenes for us to have a hit. And it didn't it wasn't happening fast enough for Virgin. So anyway, to cut a long story short, it would, there was lots of machinations going on behind the scenes. And they wanted to see what would happen if Phil was just a straightforward pop star and that they'd set us loose in the studio and they gave us, you know, we formed BEF and all that stuff. And, uh, and we thought that Fascist Groothang would be a top 10 hit. And in fact, the, the record company did as well. And because it was banned by the BBC, it wasn't. And that kind of... So the first album was highly credible, and in fact it was in the top 40 for 75 weeks. But it was a slow burner, and, and I think uh, the second album came along. Whilst Virgin never overtly said, look, you're messing with Daddy's cat. You know, that time you guys stop being artists and start selling shit, right? It wasn't like that. But it was, there was a very obvious subtext that, we will give you the freedom. We believe in you, but you've got to come up with the goods in terms of sales. And I tell this, I told this story in the, the autobiography. Um, but the second album, we had a budget in our, in our contract. But in reality, it was a blank check. They just said, where do you want to record it? What musicians do you want? Uh, we said, well, Air Studios in Oxford Circus, thank you very much. George Martin Studio, best studio in Britain. Uh, which musicians do you want? And we got recommendations of the best session players, you know, and, and people like Earth, Wind and Firehorns, you know, Phoenix Horns. Uh, they never... Right from the outset of the Human League and Heaven 17, we said to them, 
you don't have to sign us, but if you do, you've got to trust us. So we wouldn't allow any interference at all in the creative process in the studio. They, were, they never argued uh, if we said we wanted an orchestra, they said, how many players do you want? If we said we wanted Phoenix Horns, they said, fine. They want paying in cash, that's fine. You know, they did everything in their power to give us the freedom because they believed that we were going to make them a lot of money, and we did. Uh, it was a very expensive album to make, say now it's like three hundred thousand uh, pounds, which is the equivalent of millions now. But surely the uh, most sometimes when people are pushed into making something commercial, that can actually be quite limiting for them. But seemingly, you really rose to the occasion because you know you. Were- no, our viewpoint was. As like compose as a, as write as songwriters as making the record having all that at your disposal is fantastic, but actually coming up with the 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 songs in the first place that will then shine with everything you can throw on it is is, is a different but, thing. But the thing is, uh, what what is a very important driving force here is that we all loved popular music. I mean, as it as in pop intelligent pop music and that was our ambition it wasn't like we wanted to be radiohead for instance or somebody that's esoteric we it was never our intention we had that element to us we liked the idea of experimental stuff as sidebar uh to let people know we could do that if we wanted to but really our in our hearts i remember when i was producing billy mckenzie and he came up to me one day and he said, Martin, Martin, you have a pop heart. And I thought, that's a lovely compliment from somebody like Billy. And I believe that Billy had a pop heart too. So whilst uh, some of the stuff he did was quite, on the surface, seemed quite esoteric, at its heart, it was, it was pop music. It was, it was David Bowie at his peak. It was, do you know, do you know what I mean? I don't mean necessarily... Chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap, you know, or the Archies. But we knew we had one chance with the second album, with all the resources that we had to go for the jugular, and we did. And that's, we weren't taking any prisoners. We weren't embarrassed to write catchy pop songs. That's what we were aiming at. Yeah. Do you remember the first one of those that you got for that record where you all looked at each other and went, yep. We're going to be fine. Well, the way that we work is we write all the backing tracks uh, in demo form first. And in fact, they're on the internet somewhere. So there used to be a tape, and I think somebody nicked it from a studio and somebody put it up on the internet. And they all had different working titles. Um, And we, in fact, we wrote most of them as demos. I did most of the kind of musical, the chords and stuff and the structures. Uh, they were mainly written on a Porter Studio, actually, um, with a Casio, a cheap Casio keyboard. Um, I did a lot of it at Glen's Old Flat in Notting Hill. Um, yeah, in the port studio, we thought well, that was fantastic, you know. 
and I wish we'd still got those demos. God, it was, I'd, I'd kill to get hold of those. Um, anyway, yeah, so we did that. Uh, and then at that stage, you go, well, this is quite a catchy tune, you know. But there are no top lines, there are no lyrics. They only really blossom when you start writing lyrics for them and melodies and stuff. So the ones of those that uh, felt immediately very commercial was Temptation. Definitely. And, and um, we live so fast. And um, crushed by the wheels of industry, I suppose. Come Live With Me, we thought was a really great song, but we weren't sure if it was too kind of mid-tempo for the market. Because everything seemed to, you know, in the post-punk, that post-punk period, it seemed to be that the, the stuff that was a bit faster seemed to be doing more commercially well. Yeah. So, but as it, and, and, oh, and Let Me Go, of course. You know, yeah. we thought Let Me Go was the best thing we'd ever, and yeah, to be honest. That's why it was the first single. And we, everybody was convinced that was going to be a hit, and of course it got to 42. <laughs> oh, we were so pissed off. And the record company was shocked because they they were they were as convinced as we were. It's just a beautiful song, you know, and it, it's got the TB three hundred three on it, so it's kind of contemporary and it's got a great structure. And it's still our favourite song. Anyway, it wasn't a hit. And then so we had the meeting afterwards, the debrief, and we said they said, "What do you think the next single should be?" And we said, oh, "It's got to be Temptation." It's Stone Cold hit. Stone Cold. And they didn't want to put it out. Can you believe? As a single. And we said, what? 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 They said, no, we're not sure about the mix. Um, we, wa we, we want to send... There's something not quite there. We want to send it away to um, David Kirshenbaum, who, was, who had just produced um, Joe Jackson's big hit, uh, Different Girls. Oh, Different yeah. Girls, right, yeah. Anyway, he was from LA, sent the multi-track over, he sent a remix back, which was frankly awful. Uh, it was just missed the point of the song completely. So we had another, uh, we went in uh, a slight, with a slightly more, um, shall we say, insistent uh, attitude to have a meeting with Simon Draper and said, look, You've got to trust us on this one. This will be uh, a top 10 hit, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, it, it transpired that the reason why they didn't want to put it out is because they didn't have Carol Kenyon under contract. Mm -hmm. And they were worried that she was going to blackmail them or something. Uh, anyway, it all got sorted out. They put it out. And I remember ringing up John Webster on the to find out what the midweeks were on the week of release. And uh, it wasn't the week of release. It took longer to get up there. But anyway, it was storming up the charts. And, there were, and the, it must have been the second or third week. And I think it was in the top 15 or something. And it was still, the sales were still increasing. So I rang you up on the 
to get the midweeks, and he said, Martin, it's pissing out. The, the, the pressing plants can't press enough copies. We're having to go abroad to get more copies pressed. Uh, it was selling 25,000 a day at that point. And uh, they said, this was John Webster, who's a you know, legendary guy in the music industry. He said, I think we got a shot on number one. It was number one midweek. Yeah. And they said, barring some, you know, barring some, something highly unusual happening, it will be number one next week. We're, so we're going straight down the pub, right? And, uh, and then we got the chart, uh, we got the chart announcement and, uh, Candy Girl had just pips us to it, you know, new edition. Yeah. By 1%. Right. Ah, we were gutted. And then, because, you know, number one in the UK charts at that time meant basically every single territory would promote the fuck out of it. Yeah. And, and it would probably be at least top five in most territories. Um, anyway, so said, so we talked to John Webster and he said, but, you know, I caught, we called him on the Monday and he said, I can't believe it. Sales are still increasing, even though you didn't get to number one. I think we got a show on number one. So it was number one midweek again. And then the following Sunday, what comes out but true by Spandau Ballet, Whoops. which goes straight into number <laughs> one. Yeah. So anyway, but we were right. More to the point, we were right. It was a giant hit. It sold nearly a million copies. Yeah. Um, and that kind of nailed it for us. We, we were then regarded as a proper, you know, uh, on, on that list of artists who were known everywhere in Britain and a lot of places abroad as well. When you were writing Temptation, was it from the moment that it was written, was it always intended to have a high female vocal do that chorus. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's an, it's an interesting record on the basis of the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a duet really for a band. Well, we never done a duet and it was, uh, 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 I'm pretty sure it was my idea. We wanted it to be, yeah, I think it would have been a bit more a bit cliched if it's just a guy singing about sexual excitement it just feels a bit i don't know a bit awkward mm. whereas if it's a duet of mutually you know the the metaphor is obviously sex mm -hmm. as uh, as is common in a giant number of pop songs but we wanted it to feel like there's a kind of rising sense of excitement with two, you know, a man and a woman, mm -hmm. which reached some kind of climax towards the end, you know. Which was musically demonstrated by the consistently rising sort of almost yeah. shepherd tone. Yeah, the kind of chords. staircase yeah. kind of uh, triads. Yeah. Which, um, you know, and obviously the... The trick to that is 
you change the inversions once you get to the top, so like the bottom, the top note becomes the bottom note, and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so it can, in theory, keep climbing forever. Yeah. And that was accentuated even more by uh, the brilliant string arrangement of uh, John Wesley Barker. Yeah. And uh, we explained the theory behind the song, and he said, well, I think we can enhance this with the different orchestral colours and, you know, etc. Which I saw actually now appears on one of the latest compila compilations as a Temptation Overture or Orchestra, just the orchestra-only version appears now, which is amazing That's to hear. right, yeah. I mean, I yeah, was on, you can listen to it online. I yeah, yeah. I mean, I was obviously lucky enough to hear it when when we remixed it for Brothers in Rhythm, but uh, just um, it just sits so perfect. It doesn't get in the way. It's the perfect example of what you were saying about electronic and orchestral music living in harmony and side by side. It's not. It doesn't try to be too complicated. It just no absolutely and also, delivers. Um, one of the briefs that we gave to John was we wanted that. It's not just a sense of sexual excitement. It's that kind of sense of irresistible kind of optimism, which the example I gave to him was um, like, um, and I can't remember the composer. Was it Elmer Bernstein? I don't know. Um, well, we've always been very influenced by film soundtracks. So, uh, Big Country, the film Big Country. Yeah. You know, that's not constantly rising, but there's something about that kind of, that broad sweep of, of optimism mm. uh, and, you know, can't wait for the future to arrive. Kind of thing, and uh, he embodied it perfectly. Yeah, yeah superb orchestral arrangement. It was also another great showcase for what became to be a very iconic um, backing vocal sound that you and Heaven Seventeen yeah. did. Well, I have to give kudos to um, Greg Walsh, who was our co-producer on the album, who um, learned his craft at the hands of. Um, Jeff Emmerich, who was the mm. the um, famous Beatles producer at Abbey Road, um, but he was kind of co-producer, stroke engineer on on the great Heatwave hits. Oh right, yeah. Uh, and he worked with Rod Temperton on yeah. those as well. Yeah. Now they, obviously, you know Michael Jackson mm. wrote for Michael Jackson as well. Rod Temperton. And so that, those kind of vocal stacking techniques, uh, Greg literally taught us all that. We would never have thought of it. You know, I mean, we were running 72 tracks, three multi-track, 24-track multi-tracks mixers yeah. at the time and doing bounces from 48 to 24 and all sorts of weird stuff that was really top-end at that time. And... Uh, so like the opening chord, for instance, on Let Me Go. And yeah. The, oh, yeah. That's like a 13-part harmony with um, me and Glenn singing each part six times on the same mic. Yeah. So that's 13, if you count them as individual voices, 13 times 12 
Yeah. That's 156 voices. Yeah. Just for part uh, for a second of music. Yeah. For instance. Yeah. And that took three hours to do. Just that. Do you know what I mean? We're looking at a different level of ambition. Some would say insanity, you know. Yeah, but the sound is great. And also, I'm guessing each time you're doing it, you're doing it slightly different. If it's that yeah. whole Michael Jackson thing, there's going to be one full out, one that's just pure yeah, breath. exactly. Ones that's just even a whisper without even a tone on it. We do whisper tracks. We do... So, so you've got an optional articulation, you know. Sometimes when you... You know all this, but for people who don't, sometimes when you do a huge amount of stacking can sometimes mush up the articulation which is why uh you often do whisper tracks on top because you can add some sibilance and and uh, articulation to the noise yeah uh which is a bit of a yeah, fantastic trick which you taught us as well and um yeah so i'm a quick learner though so i nicked all that stuff and used it on other productions well, like Tina Turner, yeah. Yeah, I think it's being inspired. But also, I think whilst we're on this, for like the two of us talking about it, I think as far as because people are often asking about that sort of, you know, those great crisp backing vocal arrangements that people absolutely adore and and, and the sound of them. And it is the thought, all the things that you say. But one of the things that makes it sound the way that it does is because not everything is completely 100% in tune. And this is what people miss. And this is it? what people miss. You can do what you did and have 128 voices, but if every one of them is going through auto-tune, it will just sound thin. Precisely. And in fact, you'll get phase cancellation as well. Yeah, it's the modulation of the voices that is the thing that makes it sound the way that it does. And let me tell you, actually, Steve, that we became just like machines yeah because when you're doing that number of of uh, 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 uh for everything yeah it becomes like a, a production line and you can do it really well so you get to the point where you know you don't need to align things where there wasn't such a thing as uh digital audio workstations but you so you have to do everything by ear but they they weren't it's better if they're not aligned completely. Mm. I mean, you can tidy up the ends, for instance, and stuff like that by erasing stuff, and we did all that. But nowadays, everything, it's like you do things visually, don't you? So it's like, well, there are even programs that do it automatically, and it's like, you're missing out, man. I've just produced an album with Kate Jackson, used to be in The Long Blondes, mm -hmm. where we've... It's literally the first full album I've produced and wanted to produce in the last 20 years. Mm. And we've gone back to, and it's pure analog. Yeah. And, but it's, I taught her all the stuff that we learned with Hem 17 to you, do her voice. She's kind of picked that ball up and run. I mean, my God, some of the tracks have got like 60 odd tracks of vocals on them. And, but you would never know. It's just about textures. Yeah. It didn't have to accept, it didn't sound complex. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, anyway, it's something that I would urge people who are making records now to, to um, make full use of, of, of 
of, of, of the organic nature of recording. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Um, just wanted to quick to go on to, we talked about it. We've mentioned it a few times now, but just that general kind of master of reinvention thing that you have, which you, from the beginning of BEF, you have managed to rework so many classics and, um, and, and just kind of change them and put them into a, a new soundscape. Um, is that something that comes very natural to you? I think it's, it's essentially, it started out as a kind of what if things like, what if this was an electronic track rather than, you know, Neil Young singing, a man needs a maid, you know, yeah. or whatever. I just like the naughtiness of it. It's kind of like a curiosity. But then, you know, by the time we got to the, you know, to the, to the second BF and the third one, well, the second one was uh, was my attempt at a definitive electro soul reinterpretation album, which I thought we'd hinted at the first one, and then we did that. And uh, I'm still very proud of that album. I think it should have done better than it did. Um, the third one, which not many people have heard because it came out on a smaller label, um, was my attempt at doing it but this time with into more like interpreting the the times we're living in so it's like darker versions of previously happy pop songs mm. uh but done with a more kind of a soundscapey attitude largely yeah uh, so it's, there's always got to be a a a, a guiding principle behind the particular bs albums i mean I also use BEF as a kind of brand name for my productions as well. So that was more directed by really what was commercially necessary. But when I was doing my own stuff, um, I can honestly say that it was more of a kind of pop stroke art project. And I think sometimes it's, I mean, it is obviously very electronic, but the, the one that I remember particularly which just had a really lived in a beautiful sonic world was the um the sandy shore version of anyone who had a heart that you did oh yeah which had that incredible sort of wayne shorter-esque kind of sax in the background and yeah it was kind of almost like a precursor to where lana del rey ended up and it lived in this really wonderful dusky world that wasn't wildly electronic Actually, no, it wasn't. That was again experimenting with different textures. But the the irony is that, of course, I learned uh, I I learned how to create music through molding analog synths, yeah, analog synths, yeah, and sounds. So when you come at it from that direction, I'm looking at strings uh, and orchestra from the shape of what I could do on a system 100, for instance, mm. you know, attack, decay, sustain, release, like pointillism in sonic pointillism, you know, kind of that kind of thing. So yeah, it's very interesting the, that Sandy Shaw track was my obsession at the time. It was the first time I worked in a proper, um, 
you know, studio with loads of outboard gear. In fact, it was um, John Fox's studio, The Garden mm-hmm. in Shoreditch. And they got this fantastic original plate, you know, EMT or whatever it was. Uh, it was a gold or whatever, and it's just, uh, I was just in love with the sound of it. So, of course, I didn't know what I was doing. I just put everything through it because I wanted to sound like, I wanted to sound like uh, Phil Spector, you know. I, that was the effort for that particular track, was to sound, have that epic, you know, everything, the drums, everything was going through one plate, basically. And also for you, I mean, it must, from, from especially growing up around so much soul, you must have got such a kick out of, of, of having people like Chuck Khan and Billy Preston come in and Well, record. I hunted them down like a dog. So was that so, your, that was, did you have a hit list of people you wanted? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some turned me down, but, um, I mean, Shaka, what a talent. I mean, you know, maybe Staples, for God's sake. Yeah. No, but there are a limited number of people on earth who have a completely distinctive and unique voice, and she's one of them. Yeah. Plus, she's a great interpreter of soul. Um. I always wanted to record with Aretha and ne- nearly got to do it in uh, New York in the early 2000s when she was doing her duets album. I was very close to pulling off getting her doing it with C, uh, doing a, a cover version. I can't remember what the song was now. With Seal, anyway. I thought her and Seal would be a fantastic combination. Yeah. Uh, but no, it didn't come off in the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, Shaka. Um, Tina, of course, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say about that. I mean, initially, what when you go back to just talking about those people like Shaka and, and, and even coming into Tina, I mean, what, what, are, what is your advice really for just getting an incredible vocal from an artist? I think it's about having the confidence in, you, in, you, in your own taste. Yeah. Actually. Uh, because once you get to the level of Shaka Khan and Tina, and many of the, many of the other vocalists that I've worked with, they know what they can do. I mean, they, 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 you're not asking them to do anything that they can't do. So the worst thing that can happen is that you lose their trust. Yeah. So right from the outset, I always make sure I put them at their ease Always make sure I have a good meeting with them beforehand. It's never the first time I meet them is in the studio. Um, I flatter myself to think I have many faults, by the way, many, but uh, I'm quite good at getting on with people. Mm. So that counts for a lot. Mm. Just being an a, a agreeable person who's empathetic. Yeah. Um, and. It, I mean, it didn't work 100% of the time, but, but if people, in my experience, if great artists feel relaxed and able to express themselves in the studio, it's as simple as that. They will go ahead and do it. You don't have to... You, you, you have to kind of keep a hand on the tiller. Um, but, with, you know... Certainly, for Tina, I didn't have to tell her anything. I mean, she'd already nailed it. It was all first take. Both Ball of Confusion and um, Let's Stay Together were both 
completely no drop-ins. That was one take, which I've never encountered before or since. Au contraire, we've got uh, Shaka, who's insanely talented, but uh, a bit erratic. Mm. So, and we unfortunately we we were recording with a live band because wanted to. So I felt that uh, she would feel more comfortable performing, and and also the musicians would perform better if we performed. Someday we'll all be free with a live band, and then I'd do the programming afterwards, mm-hmm. um, which is what we did. We ended up every take was pretty pretty much different because she's got that kind of improvisational thing inside her, mm. uh, which is a, a double edged sword. Um, so we ended up doing, I think, 15 takes. It took us about four days to comp a vocal from it. But by the time you hear it on the record, it sounds flawless yeah, and perfect and inspired and passionate and spontaneous. Yeah. And I think the skill of me and you and other producers who understand the power of vocals as a, uh, as a tool in track is, well, I sing as well, you know, so I, I, I understand the mechanisms behind it, I understand what sounds real and what doesn't. I understand something that sounds kind of hokey, you know, um, uh, intuitively. So, but you, what you want, what essentially you want to do is to keep Everything sounding like it was done in one take. Yeah. Essentially, for me. Yeah. And the problem is, if you don't really understand what you're doing, that can end up sounding very bland. And yeah. the, the equivalent of that is putting altitude on everything. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, if I think, if I, I feel when I'm compiling a vocal that it's losing the excitement, I always go for the spiciest version yeah. of yeah. any particular line. Uh, even if it's got slight, if it's slightly out of tune or a, a voice cracks, or I want the person who's listening to it to feel like the person who's delivering it is putting some effort in, and it doesn't have to be shouty or screamy. It can be very delicate, but it's got to sound human. It's got to sound empathetic. Completely you know, there's agree. No, there's no replacement. The human voice is in popular music you know the uh, for me is 75 percent of it yeah it's all about believability 100 percent. and of course the curveball of tina turner's comeback which you you know were heavily involved in wasn't as much of a curveball because as you say two years prior to let's stay together she had already recorded ball of confusion for bef so the genius was them coming back to you when she was about to be relaunched and asked to do it again. And I'm guessing even the song selection was your choice. Yeah. Well, when she did Bald Confusion, that was because James Brown, James Brown's lawyers had had, um, tried to blackmail us at the last minute. His lawyers wanted his points his percentage on his track but on the entire album and we said we can't do that it's because not because there's a favored nations clause for all, all of them we'd have yeah. had to give away 
all the money for the else. But anyway, that was, but they, it was brinkmanship, so it was 24 hours before the recording. So uh, it's fate, though, isn't it? Because I was there bemoaning my fate in Virgin, and somebody came past and said, Oh, I'm going to be seeing Tina Turner in LA next week. Shall I ask her? I went, yeah, and I'd just been to see Tina Turner do um, the uh, Proud Mary show, um, which is all her old hits, and she was fantastic. She didn't, she didn't even have a record label at the time. It's, ama- it's a, actually it's amazing to think that, isn't it? It's incredible. And, uh, well, you know, James Brown went through long periods of his career where he's into a label. Um, and everybody thought she was over. You know, she was just like a, a footnote, you know. And um, so I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, River Deep Mountain High, one of my favorite records of all time. And uh, let's do it. So we did it. World Confusion came out great. And it's kind of hardcore electronic sounding, which is great. And, uh, and then Roger Davis had just joined and was very impressed with the fact that it was a, the new the new British sound, right? And uh, came back to us and said, would you write something for the album? And we were right in the middle of writing Luxury Gap. And um, A, we didn't have time, unfortunately. But B, scared stiff to write something for a legend, you know. Um, it's one thing admiring soul music and doing cover versions of soul music, but to actually write something that sounds authentically like that is is quite a th- anyway so uh we said but we you know we can definitely do you a um uh a cover version or two so so we'll come up with a shortlist and and you know we'll meet in london and we'll talk about it so i went around to see her on top of my list and i wish i'd still got this there was 10 tracks and i wish i'd still got it but I'll, it's disappeared uh, top of the list was uh, my number one choice was Let's Stay Together. And if I thought, well, I may as well start with my favourite rather than build up to it. So I said, well, my number one choice is this. And she loved the idea immediately. I didn't know, she, but she was a huge Al Green fan and grew up with him and said, I'd love to do that. So holding one. And then about six or seven down the list, was uh, I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a David Bowie song? Because I knew she was a big David Bowie fan. And I thought it'd be great to do something that was a bit more, a bit less nostalgic and a bit more kind of uh, felt more contemporary. So uh, I thought, wouldn't it be ironic if we did 1984? Because it was like we were making the album was going to be released in 1984. And I've always loved that song anyway. Look, Diamond Dogs, I think, is Bowie's most underrated album. And um, she loved that as well. So it's hole in two, you know, or two holes in one, whichever. With uh, Let's Stay Together, I'm interested in this because I sometimes get this question and I'm really interested to know what you, how the process works. The moment you hear that Let's Stay Together is the choice and that's the one to do, uh, do you in your head start almost arranging it with the, before you even get into the studio, do you know what that record's going to sound like before you even start doing the track for it? Not really. It, it evolves organically. 
as I go into, uh, uh, but I do it all in studio. Not with not with Tina present, by the way. No, no, no. But did you like, for instance, just starting with that one solitary synth chord? Was that a sort of a starting point for you that it was? No, start? that came later. Oh, interesting. Uh, the first thing is always the rhythm track, so I I always programmed the lindrum first. Yeah. But my my thing was I wanted it to the rhythm track to feel a bit like a lindrum version of. Something like Mercy, Mercy Me. Yes. Yeah, uh, with, yeah, you yeah. know, that beautiful kind yeah. of conga uh, sonar sound. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I did that. I programmed with that in my mind. Yeah. And then I got some of the um, session players that we've got to come in. <laughs> Try a few ideas out for different patches. Um, and we just got a new... We were messing about with the Quantec Room Simulator. Right. Uh, which was, uh, for anybody who didn't know, it was a piece of kit that would cost about £10,000 when it first came out. And it was an amazing piece of kit, which I still got one, actually. Um, and it had this unique thing, which was a freeze function. Yeah. And it was the first device invented that could ever done now. Of course, everybody's done it and mm -hmm. could do it on just about anything. But then it was unique. So it had long reverbs involved and you could press freeze and it would make this cloud of sound. Yeah. And depending on what you put into it. So we had this kind of chiffer, chiffer kind of stringy organy sound, which I think came from the Fairlight, mm. uh, which we fed into it on this kind of beautiful, 1790 chord which was played by nick Pletus, our keyboard player and i spotted this chord i thought wouldn't it be great to have a to its for the whole track to sound like it's kind of art installation start off with yeah and it, then it kind of then it kind of blends into the to the chordal arrangement but there's mm. no rhythm on the front no and so it's just this really beautiful heartbreakingly beautiful vocal that's what you focused on totally. it feels completely it feels completely um contemporary yeah and daring and then of course the rhythm comes in and you got the you, then you got that beautiful ray russell guitar which has responded to all, all her vocals filling in all those gaps mm. and the bass and the and 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 not much else, really. I mean, it's quite simple and beautiful. And the backing vocals, which, of course, is our signature, me and Glenn, yeah. uh, gave it something that kind of reminded people it was M17 in the background. It's still an amazing-sounding record. Um, and it's I think still it sounds very... I was going to change the name of my production um, entity to Timeless Productions because that was always my ambition to make things that were timeless. I think they are, though. I think, you know, you share that with, you know, with people like I know that Trevor Horn's a hero of yours and mine, but I think, you know, those things, you, you can listen to that version of Let's Stay Together now and there's nothing about it that, that feels dated. 
No, but I think there's nothing about it that wouldn't work now if there was a normal kind of pop radio mechanism for making hits, which there isn't anymore. So it's a really perfect, perfect pop production. Um, I'm, I'm aware we're sort of of, of time. Yeah. So I just wanted a couple more things to talk to you quickly about. Um, I know that you kind of single-handedly went after the Terence Trent Darby album. I was about to do another production. I think it was a wet, 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 actually. And somebody sent me a tape out of the blue. It's this guy called Lincoln Elias, who's a famous A&R man now, but he was 17 and he was an intern at the time. And he, he somehow found my address and said, you've got to hear this tape. And I put it on and he immediately said, I want to do this. And I think about seven of those tracks n- were never recorded. Uh, oh. I, I, he'd already passed through the phase. They sounded like outtakes from a Stevie Wonder album. They were amazing. I wish I still got the tape. Um, but anyway, so I heard it and I, I immediately rang him and said, can I meet him? So we met him in, in the record company offices the next day. Not really sure what I was going to pitch them. And um, and he came to me when I, when I arrived and met him, and we got on really well. And I just said to him, "I I just said to him, I know the record you 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 need to make, and I can help you make it, and we can do it if provided we're allowed to do it by the record company, and we're not interfered with. We can make a great record." And he wasn't just like you know, some bullshit. I really believed it because I, I understand yeah. what he was aiming for. I understand that, that, um, context and tight. And, you know, I'm a, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of soul music, you know, yeah. but I also love experimental electronic music, you know? Yeah. So who else is going to make that record? There's not that many. have got those two, those, those two circles on the Venn diagram, you know? And he believed me, thank God, and that's how we ended up doing it. Yeah, and I think "Sign Your Name" is that a perfect example of exactly everything you've just spoken about, which is yeah. the combination of electronic and soul, and it effectively a Stevie Wonder song that Stevie Wonder never wrote. It's a it's an incredibly beautiful song. We can't. I mean, I that was very much uh, 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 a joint effort in terms of the arrangement because I, I, I flatter myself with this. I think maybe not flatter myself, but um, I had this key idea in the song, which was to start with um, synthetic strings. We, my, my workhorse at the time was like an emulator too. So I got a load of fantastic sounds on there, but the, they were very indicative of, you know, they, they sounded like a certain thing. Uh, and I thought, might get on your nerves after a while, because it's very slow. The chord changes are very slow. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if we started with synthetic strings? And then in the middle eight, covered by the introduction of a, 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 of a kind of doo-wop backing vocal and his lead vocal, underneath that, imperceptibly like some kind of magic trick they turn into real strings and i think it will make the listener feel a kind of subconscious warmth towards the record and i think it's a really clever it's one of those very 
there's very few records out there that do this. And as you say, it's quite film soundtracky in the way that the, the song is the hook, but also the kind of instrumental counter melody is equally the hook. And, and the, the going back to the kind of the vocal, uh, Epicureanism, that's a good word. Wow. Come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Use it. Feel free to use it. Thank you. Um, I love that. The, the kind of taste that you have as to what works and what doesn't it was a vocal. It's a bit like knowing good food when you taste it. And it's like everything on that record from the vocal perspective on, on sign your name is all about articulating the emotion in the song. Yeah. There's no fat on it. No, I agree. It's not just about speaking these beautiful, which work as poetry, by the way, the, the, the lyrics are just yeah. fantastic, but, um, the dynamics of his and the range of his voice articulates and it, it, it soars and then it, and then you got this continuum, then it soars again towards the end. You know, it's so beautiful. And I on, honestly, I know I was involved in making it, but I could listen to that tune anytime. I just think it's a thing of beauty. It really is. It really is. Um, one of the really interesting things about doing these interviews is that I find I stumble across facts that I didn't know. And, 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 you know, you know that I'm a huge admirer of what you do. And I thought that I knew everything you produced, but it turns out there is one of my favorite, um, I have a hidden gems playlist. I'm sure you've got one as well. All these little things that you're like, maybe songs that not everyone knows, or maybe they were hits and people forgotten. And you did one of them. And, and it is Gotta Get It Right by Leonie Fiegby. Oh my God, you know about that? That That's is a great song, such by the way. a tune. I, I was looking up this morning, I was like, oh yeah. Like, and yeah. actually, if, not, if, if you know, you know with that song, and if you don't go listen to it, the moment you'll hear it, what just i love that i've always it's, loved that song i a, didn't know you did it it's just a delight that song is like um he's uh, and what do i liken it to it's like a it's like a driving tune isn't it it's like it just kind of glides along with this beautiful melody and it's got fantastic kind of chugging engine underneath yeah you know, I, I just loved. I, I loved it. I've always loved it. I thought it was a really great pop record. So, um, so look, we, we're recording at the end of 2023. You've you've had arguably one of your biggest years celebrating 40 years of Temptation with Heaven 17. You've just come back off tour. I can't imagine how many shows you've done. You were lucky. We were lucky enough to have you at our 80s classical show this year. But you've just been, I would say, busier than ever. Being, uh, this year has nearly killed me, I have to say. Okay. Um, I've only just recovered from the tour. We did 15 dates in 23 days. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a young man's game, you know. <laughs> but, um, but next year we're doing new, we're doing touring America again. We're touring, um, <clears throat> touring Australia for the first time. Brilliant. Uh, we'll hopefully, um, hopefully. Uh, still in negotiations, but hopefully going to restage the reproduction of Travelogue shows that we did originally at the Roundhouse and uh, Sheffield City Hall. Um, 
and loads of other exciting stuff coming up. That's just one side of my career and then loads of stuff was illustrious as well. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even got a chance to get into that sort of the, the sound design stuff, but I think from a music point of view, you must be, you must feel an exceptional amount of pride with of the fact that so many elements of, of things you've been involved with for so long still are revered and still are being discovered every single day by new audiences and loved by new audiences and 40 years well it's great i mean there there are quite a lot of young people uh, who've generally generationally come along with their parents and stuff uh at our shows it's quite encouraging really it's like star trek the next generation yeah yeah um but what i would recommend to people who are involved in writing and producing music is if you make it a central premise of what you do not to just make things sound like everything else that's going on at the time in an effort to chase the money you know i just think it, i mean i've never found it very difficult to just believe in yourself and let the dice fall where they may mm. because you know people want leadership uh, in music everywhere politics you name it they want lead they want leaders and if you're you need to become a leader if you're going to become an artist and you're going to become some new people follow over a period of time. I mean, I regard my career as being a bit like a kind of miniature Marvel cinematic universe, you know, all everything's kind of connected in some way. Yeah. Um, and for people who want to dig a bit deeper, it's got some, you know, it, it's interesting. I think it's got some depth to it. Yeah. And it, so it's not just like, in other words, it's not just like some kind of, Oh God, it's a job, you know, commercial enterprise, do this. If you think from the outset, from the inception of, of what you do, like an artist, I think you've got much more chance of being successful. Honestly, but believe that definitely worked for me. Yeah, that is incredible advice. And I totally agree with actually with everything you're saying there. Um, thank you so much for, um, chatting to me, obviously go find m 17 bef first two league albums everything's on spotify um if you don't already please listen to martin's podcast because he's going to be doing it forever and he's not, no, not and he's not allowed not. to I'm stop really <laughs> he's not allowed to stop <laughs> any recommendations you've got, oh let me know well i think way. you've done it yeah you've nearly done everyone but um it's it is fantastic so please don't stop and please enjoy your very well-earned break after Thank an incredible after such an incredible year and yeah, you're an inspiration to so many people and, and thank you for the music. Oh, Steve, that's so kind of you. No, thank honestly you, you are. And, um, you know, I don't normally big myself up so much, so. I'm glad you did. I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I, we, we don't, we don't like doing that, but I'm, I'm glad that you've been able to sort of see that a little bit in this. So I'm really pleased. Um, no, thanks man. All right. Take all care, right, man. See you later. See ya. Bye. Bye.